Glad to have him. Michael Andrews, uh, many of you recognize him up here working with our praise team on um, Sunday. Some of you may know, some of you may not know, Michael is the grandson of Miss Frances Markham, who I'm sure is very proud of her grandson this morning. Michael's been coming to our church. His family lives nearby, and they come, and they, over the years, have visited for Mother's Day and Father's Day and birthdays, and so I've seen Michael when he was shorter than me. And uh, over the years, that, that's changed, and uh, just uh, glad to have you leading us in worship and just uh, pleased what God is doing in your life. Would you turn this morning with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I hope this series in Thessalonians has been a benefit to you. It has been to me studying my way through this book, and I hope it has been to you. And we're going to continue this morning in our study of this letter that Paul wrote to this beleaguered group of believers in the city of Thessalonica. And as this group of believers is struggling through persecution that they are facing, Paul writes to them to tell them, and not so much to tell them, but to remind them of how to live out that Christian life while we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. And so he continues in his instructions and in his reminder to these Thessalonian believers in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. So let's read that together. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it is with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Father, our prayer this morning, as always, is as we open your word, that we would do so with a, an attitude that says what you say we will do, what you command we will obey, and where you direct we will go. And so in that spirit, Father, we read your word and we pray that you would use it in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, as I was preparing this message, I, I googled a phrase, top 10 Christian activities. And I did that expecting to get some, some sites that maybe would list uh, what are the, the top 10 things that Christians, as Christians, do or at least think they ought to do in their lives. So, so what are the things? Bible study, going to church, prayer, you know, witnessing. What are the things that Christians, as Christians, living out their Christian lives do, or at least think they ought to be doing in their Christian lives? And I did that because I wanted to see where prayer might fall on that list. Are Christians praying? Are Christians not praying? Do Christians think they ought to pray? But you know what I found? Most of the first page of results, when I googled uh, this phrase, top ten Christian activities, had to do with video games. That was really weird. It was really strange. Video games for Christians. Why aren't there any good Christian video games, was one. Should Christians be playing video games, and so on. And, and, and that was very strange to me, that, that that's the result I got back. Now, I understand that, that the phrase I used probably wasn't the best to get the results I was looking for, but I really didn't expect that, and it got me to thinking about how much time we spend entertaining ourselves and how little time, in comparison, we spend 
praying. When you Google top 10 Christian activities, and most of the results are about video games, that just causes you to scratch your head a little bit. So I looked up some statistics regarding this. See what some sources would tell me about the kind of time we spend doing these various activities. Here's one source had this article. Here's the headline. Young people spend seven hours, 38 minutes a day on TV, video games, and computer. The amount of time, this is the article, the amount of time young people spend consuming media has ballooned with around-the-clock access and mobile devices that functions practically as an appendage, according to a new report. Young people now devote an average of 7 hours and 38 minutes to daily media use, or about 53 hours a week, more than a full-time job, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation findings released today. Another article that I found listed these statistics. The average person spends 24 minutes a day getting dressed. Now, that means that there are a lot of people who spend no time getting dressed, because in my house there is nobody who spends just 24 minutes getting dressed. The average person spends 40 minutes a day on the phone. The average person spends three hours a day watching television. And we saw when you add other media in it, that that expands. And then listen, the average Christian spends less than 10 minutes a day in prayer. Other sources I read had that between one and four minutes a day in prayer. Another article claimed this. Since 2006, the amount of time that the average person spent on social networking sites has more than doubled from 2.7 hours to 6.9 hours a month. Now, I can't vouch for all of these numbers and these statistics, whether they're actually or 100% accurate or not. I, I don't know, but here's what I know. Intuitively, we know that's true, right? Intuitively, we know that, that, that at least for many Christians, we spend more time on things like social media and entertainment than we do in something like praying, and it affects everyone. One article from the Baptist Press had this headline, Most Pastors Unsatisfied with Their Personal Prayer Lives. This despite the fact that Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And and this, by the way, isn't God's house. We are God's house. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, Pray without ceasing. He said, In every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Peter told husbands that they are to treat their wives right so that, quote, nothing will hinder your prayers. He also said that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. The book of Acts tells us that that the early believers met continually in prayer. I could go on. The Bible is clear. We are to be a praying people. But so often we're not. And why is that? Why is it that so many Christians do so little of what God deems so important? And perhaps the more pertinent question is, how can we change that? How can we become people of prayer? This morning I want to answer that question by looking at three motivations that Paul gives us as Christians to pray while we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Three reasons why we should make prayer in this life a priority. And here's the first one. Pray if you care about the mission. Pray if you care about the mission. And by the mission, I mean the mission of the church. The mission of the church. Paul says... 
in this passage, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. As a minister of the gospel, Paul's goal was to take the message of salvation through Jesus Christ to the world. That was what drove him. That's what motivated him. That was his mission, and that is our mission as well. Right before, uh, or rather right after his, uh, his uh, resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ gave the church its marching orders. He told us what we are to be about when he gathered his disciples together and said this in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In Acts chapter 1, right before his ascension, again, he reiterated this mission. He said it this way, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Our own purpose statement here at First Baptist Church of Alachua includes the statement, reaching the world with the message. It's what we're about. It's at the heart. It's at the core of what we're about. It is our mission. If we do away with that, then we're in danger of becoming merely... A club. I want you to watch a short video that is a parable of the church. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With little to no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and money in an effort to support the work. New boats were brought in and new crews were trained. And the little life-saving station grew. Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they began to use it sort of as a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decor, and there was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were foreigners. The beautiful new club was in chaos immediately property committee hired someone to rig up a shower outside the club where victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. The outsiders made the life-saving station extremely dirty. At the next meeting there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt that they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. But a small number of members insisted on life-saving as their primary mission and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. After all, the dissenting group's members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. 
so they did. As the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was found. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that eastern seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters. But most of the passengers drown. It's kind of sharp, isn't it? But it's true. That is our mission. We are a life-saving station. But here's the thing I want you to understand. On our own, we have no power to save anyone. That comes through the proclamation of the gospel. That's why Paul says in this passage, he asked them to pray that the message of the Lord, or you can, you can read that the message about the Lord, may spread rapidly. You see, our mission is directly tied to the effect of preaching, teaching, and sharing of God's Word, of sharing the gospel. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because why? It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So the power of God is manifested in the Word of God, and our job is to take that message, to take that Word into the world. And if we care about the mission, if we have any stake at all in the mission of the church, we should actively, intentionally, and regularly pray for the salvation of the lost through the hearing of the Gospel. Louis Sperry Chafer was the founder of Dallas Seminary, where I went to school. And he wrote a book entitled, True Evangelism, Winning Souls Through Prayer. And as the subtitle of that book might indicate, he believed that prayer was necessary for effective evangelism because it takes the moving of God's Spirit to bring people to faith in Christ. And it, he says this, I've included this in your notes. A divine illumination is demanded. No human power or argument is sufficient to enlighten a darkened soul concerning the necessary steps into the way of life. This is a part of the work assigned alone to the all-sufficient spirit. And so we pray because it pleases God to work and to respond to our prayers. It pleases God to work in response to the prayers we offer, offer to Him. In fact, it is God who moves in us to pray for the lost. Chafer goes on to say this, Compassion for lost souls will be created in the heart by the Spirit, and this will find expression and relief in the Spirit-inspired prayer of intercession. And the good news is, as I said, that God moves in response to our prayers. I don't know why. I don't know why God has, has set it up this way, why He has ordained it this way, but this is what He has ordained. Not only has He ordained what will be His purpose, what He will accomplish, but also the means by which He will accomplish it. And part of that is through our prayers. He works in response to our prayers. Not always on our timetable. Not always in the way we think maybe He should or the way that we've prayed. But He has chosen to work through our prayers. I read about a church some time ago that wanted to put this to the test, this, this idea of, 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 of effective prayer with regard to outreach and evangelism. So here's what they did. They got 80 names from the phone book in their area. 
And they prayed for those people and those households in those 80 names. And then they got another list of 80 names and they didn't pray for those people at all. And after three months of praying, they contacted all the people in both groups. They called them. Of the 80 people who received no prayer, only one responded favorably to their phone call. But among the group that received prayer, 69 responded positively, agreeing to, to a visit by church members, and 45 of them invited the church prayer teams into their homes. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? God has chosen to work in response to our prayers. We know this also from a historical perspective. Every revival or great awakening or moving of God's Spirit in a, in a significant way in this country is preceded by a serious act and movement of prayer by God's people. One of them that you may never have heard about, you may have heard about the first and second great awakening and all of that. One you maybe have never heard about is the Fulton Street Revival of 1857. The revival began with a middle-aged tradesman named Jeremiah Lampier who was left behind by a Dutch Reformed Church congregation that relocated from the corner of Fulton and Williams Street in Manhattan to the north. With families moving out of the city, leaving a population of poor immigrants and laborers, the church wanted to keep a witness in this area. And so they left Lampierre there to lead the mission to Lower Manhattan. That was his job. That was his goal. His mission was to reach the people of Lower Manhattan. At that time in 1857, 30,000 men were idle in the streets. Unemployment and drunkenness were rampant. Lampierre walked the streets around his church and he noticed businessmen as he passed who had anxious appearances and worried expressions as the, the nation was standing on the brink of economic collapse and disaster. Months of knocking on doors and sharing the gospel message didn't make much difference at all. And it left Lampierre worn out. Realizing the need for prayer, Lampierre began handing out thousands of flyers advertising the first noonday prayer meeting on Wednesday, September 23rd. He sat alone in that prayer meeting for the first 30 minutes. And then five people, five other men joined him. In the following weeks, that Wednesday prayer meeting grew and saw larger crowds. And within three months, there were prayer meetings all over the city. More than 50,000 people in New York City alone paused at noon to pray. The prayer revival soon spread across the nation, and in about 18 months, a million people were converted to Jesus Christ. If you care about the mission of the church to reach the lost, pray that the good news of the gospel will reach them, and that God will draw them to the Savior. Second, second reason why we ought to pray while we wait for the return of Christ, and that is this. Pray if you know God. Pray if you know God. Pray if you care about the mission, but number two, pray if you know God. In verse two, Paul asked him to pray that he would be protected from wicked people. And then in verse three, he says this, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say this, We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things that we command. Now, if you're in the habit of marking your Bible and making notes in your Bible, I want you to underline two phrases. One is the Lord is faithful in verse 3, and we have confidence in the Lord in verse 4. Underline those two phrases because, listen, that is the basis of prayer right there. The Lord is faithful and we have confidence in the Lord. Sometimes we use this phrase. We'll say, there's 
power in prayer. And I understand what we mean by that. But listen, technically that's not true. There is no power in prayer in and of itself. There is power in the Lord. And our confidence isn't in our prayers. Our confidence is in God. So let's take a minute. Let's look at these two phrases that that Paul uses here. First, he says, the Lord is faithful. That means that the Lord is trustworthy. God will do what he has promised to do every time. Notice in verse 2 that Paul asked them to pray that he would be delivered from evil people, right? He says, pray for me. I need to be delivered from these wicked and evil people. But his statement regarding the Lord's faithfulness is about the Thessalonians being protected from Satan. Here's what I think is going on here. Paul wanted some relief from these people who were constantly standing in his way of him fulfilling the mission that God had given him. And it was absolutely right for Paul to pray for that. That was a desire of his heart. And he was absolutely right. These people were, you know, they'd throw him in prison, they'd beat him, they'd they'd stone him and leave him for dead, they'd throw him to wild animals. All of these people are coming against him as he is seeking to take the gospel in the world. He says, hey, pray that I would have relief from these people. But listen, he had no guarantee that God would grant that, did he? Paul had no guarantee. It's right to pray that, absolutely, but he had no guarantee that that would happen. In fact, what do we know about Paul's life? That he was put to death for his faith after being imprisoned in Rome. But that does not mean God is not faithful. I want you to listen to me on this because this is so important. That does not mean God is not faithful. God had not promised Paul that he would be delivered from evil people. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can only hold God accountable to the promises that he has given us. God had not promised him that. Now, that doesn't make the prayer wrong. Listen, if you've got a need in your life, pray. Ask God to do something in your life and pray to Him. But unless He has promised you in His Word something to be true, always pray a prayer like that the way Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that He was arrested. Not my will, but your will be done. To say that God is faithful is to say that He is trustworthy. And even when He doesn't answer our prayers in the way we think maybe He should or in a way that we think meets our needs, He is still trustworthy. God did not deliver Paul ultimately from evil people. He didn't. But He was faithful. He was faithful to the promises that He had given Paul. What does God tell us in His Word? I will never leave you or forsake you. He was faithful to that promise to Paul. He was faithful to give Paul what he needed to be able to endure whatever he faced. And God has made some promises to us as well in His Word. In fact, in verse 4, Paul mentions that God will protect us from Satan. That's a promise. You can count on that. That's why Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, at the very end of the prayer, what does he include in there? And deliver us from the evil one. Why does Jesus teach us to pray that to God? Because God will do that. When Jesus prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17, he said this, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Can we trust God enough to pray that he will protect us from the spiritual attacks of the enemy? Yes, we can. Because God is is faithful to His promises. And that's the foundation of our prayer life, that God is faithful. 
But then look, Paul says that we have confidence in the Lord. And in particular, if you look at this, this context, we have confidence that God is at work in the lives of believers. Look again at verse 4. Look at what he says. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things that we command. Paul said something very similar when he wrote the Philippian believers. Look in your notes here, Philippians chapter 1. He says, I thank my, my God every time I remember you, being confident of this. There's that word, confident. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That kind of confidence in the ongoing work of God is a wonderful motivation for prayer when we're praying for other believers, is it not? To know that God is at work. Think of it this way. Imagine that you have a child who's in school and who's struggling with a subject like math. I'm going to pick one that, that I struggled with, right? You have a child and he's struggling with a subject like math. He's just not grasping the concepts, just not getting them down. If you're in that situation, you might want to go to that child's teacher and say something like, you know, my, my son is struggling with math and I need your help to help him get a hold of this material and be able to grasp it and understand these concepts. You might want to say that to the teacher. But if the teacher is lazy and uncaring and just shows up, you know, when he's supposed to show up for class and just without any care for the students just regurgitates his math lesson and writes the answers up on the board and goes home. If it's that kind of teacher, you're not going to be very motivated to go to him and to ask for his help. If, on the other hand, the teacher is a caring, hardworking teacher who routinely stays after school to work with kids and who delivers the, the math lesson with energy and enthusiasm and works with the kids, interacts with them to, to give them the best possible opportunity to grasp the concepts and to understand them, then you're going to be more motivated. You're going to be highly motivated to go to that teacher on your child's behalf. Because he's already doing everything he can for the children. God is like that teacher. And then some. He's at work growing up his children spiritually. Why then, you might say, do we need to pray for it? If God's already doing it, why do we need to pray? Because it pleases him to work in response to our prayers. This is one of the mysteries of the Christian life. Why does a sovereign God want to work in response to our prayers? I don't know. Maybe to, to include us in his kingdom work, to make us a part of what he's doing on this earth, but that is what he has ordained. But here's the point. When we pray, we do so with the confidence that he is already at work. So if you know God to be a faithful God, to do what He has promised to do. If you have confidence in God, that He is at work in this world, and He's at work in the lives of His children, then pray. And finally, pray if you love people. Pray if you love people. Paul has the heart of a pastor here. He's a shepherd. He's an overseer. He... He has a heart for these people. And that comes out in verse 5. Look at what he says. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. These believers are hurting that he's writing to. They're struggling through persecution. And Paul knows that. And he knows 
that this is not likely going to end very soon. So what does he do? He prays for them. He prays that God's love would become a source of motivation and comfort to them. It's not very different from what he prayed for the Ephesian believers. He, he expanded it a little bit there, but it's the same idea. Look in your notes, Ephesians chapter 3. He says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. To know and experience God's love is to experience the fullness of His presence in our lives. And that's what Paul wants for other believers. Because he loves them. And he wants them to experience everything that God has for them. He also prays that they would know in their own lives the same perseverance that Christ had. This is a great prayer for any Christian, but it's really a great prayer for Christians going through persecution. He's praying that they would have the grace to bear up under whatever pressure they faced, just as Jesus Christ did. He points to Christ and the fact that, that God gave him this huge burden to bear. And it was, it, was, it was an enormous pressure in his life. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating great drops of blood. And he said, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. And yet he did not break. He did not bend. He was not crushed by that pressure. Paul says, that's what I'm praying for you. That God would give you that grace. I'm wearing a watch this morning that I've had since I was 29 years old. So I've had it for six years. I was wondering if you would laugh about that or not. No, I've had it for 16 years. And on the front of it, it says WR100, which means that it's water-resistant to 100 meters, which is about 330 feet. And that's not really very deep for a diver's watch, and it's not really a diver's watch. A typical diver's watch is water-resistant to 200 or 300 meters, which if you go to 300, it's about 980 feet. But the best diver's watches in the world, the one you're going to pay big bucks for, are water-resistant up to 2,000 meters. That's over 6,500 feet. And I saw an ad for one of these watches, and, and, and it said this in reference to the 2,000-meter water resistance. It said, you won't survive that drop into the abyss. But your Brema, with its chronometer-certified movement, will still keep impeccable time. <laughs> Why? Why is that watch able to do that? Because it is designed to withstand enormous pressure. And that's what Paul is praying for these believers, that God, by His grace, would enable them to withstand the pressure of this fallen world as long as it is necessary. And why would he pray such a thing for them? Because he loved them. And he knew that until the Lord returned or called them home, whichever came first, that they would need God's strength to carry on. Listen, we can minister to one another in a lot of different ways. And, and that's another part of our purpose statement, by the way, to support one another with our love. And we could do that in a lot of different ways, and we should do that in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that we can minister to one another is through prayer. 
And as long as we're in this life, as long as we're waiting for Christ to return or to call us home, whichever comes first, we will be around other people. And we will, in our own lives, have needs. And we will experience pressure. And we will need the strength to carry on under that pressure, to to bear under that load. In our own fellowship here, there are a number of people going through very difficult times in their lives, experiencing all kinds of heartache and pain and pressure. They're suffering. If you love them, then pray for them. So pray if you care about the mission of the church, which is to reach the lost with the gospel of Christ. Listen, there's a number of ways you can do that. You could pray geographically for this area around of our church and the people living. You can pray for, for people you know personally who don't know the Lord. You could pray for your neighbors. Let me give you one other suggestion. You can take this little invite card. We've got them out here. We've got them in the foyer in the family ministry center. We've got them out in this hallway. And you can give them to people and invite them to church. Got the information about when we meet and where we are. And on the back side, it's got truelife.org, a website with video answers for life's hard questions. And these, these are pertinent, relevant issues that people in our culture today are talking about and need to have answered. And they're always geared towards the gospel. Hand this card out. Give it to people that you meet. That you, that maybe people you know don't know the Lord, don't have a church home, or you don't know, but hand it out to people. Give it to people. And just invite them to come to church and invite them to go to truelife.org. And then after you hand this out, as you walk away, or as they walk away, or as you drive away, offer a prayer to the Lord. Father, I don't know if that person knows you. I don't know their heart, but I pray if they don't, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would bring them to church where they can hear the gospel, that you would take them to truelife.org, that they would look at that, they would see that, they would go there, they would hear the gospel, and they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. You could pray for everybody you give a card to. If you care about the mission of the church, then pray. Pray if you love your fellow believers and want to minister to them in their time of need. You know, one of the best ways to do that is to be involved in a Sunday school class. I know a number of your classes send out uh, a weekly email. I get them. And with the list of, of requests that people have mentioned, of things going on in people's lives. And there's other emails that go out and you're friends with people on Facebook. But listen... Sunday school is a great place to connect with people and to know what's going on in their lives so that you can pray for their needs. And pray if you know God to be faithful and if you have confidence in Him. You know, a moment ago I said there are some things that God hasn't promised us. We can pray for those things. We can pray for those things with the understanding that His will be done. But you know what? There are some things that God has absolutely promised us to be true. And we can pray for those things knowing with certainty without a shadow of a doubt, that He will do what He said He will do. I'll tell you one of those promises. The Bible says, Paul says in the book of Romans, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling upon the name of the Lord, by the way, is a prayer. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And what that entails is that entails a person coming to an awareness of their own sinfulness and coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in a posture of repentance and faith acknowledging that there's nothing that he or she can do, and calling out to God, calling on His mercy, accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. And when you do that, 
The Bible says you will be saved. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Count on it. Take it to the bank. It's a guarantee. If you come in that way to Christ, He will save you. And if you have never done that, listen, I would be overjoyed to talk to you about that, to open God's Word and just to show you what He has said about how you can have a right relationship with Him. And we can, we can make that happen in one of several ways. Listen, during our time of invitation, we all stand and we sing. And if you'd like to come down right at that time and say, you know what, I need to talk to you about this. I don't want to put it off. I want to talk right now. Be happy to do that. You can fill out the communication card. This is one of the reasons we put that in there. So you can put your name and your phone number and, and, and an email address and check the boxes. I want to talk to somebody about what it means to be a Christian. And when you check that box, what you're saying is, give me a call. Because I want to talk to you about this. I need to settle this issue in my life. Or maybe I have some questions that I need to ask and maybe clear up some things about what this is all about. Catch me after the service. I always hang out here. I don't run out the door. I hang out here so that if you need to come up, just take me aside and say, hey, can, can we spend a few minutes and talk? I'm here to do it. You can call me, email me during the week. But listen, if God is working in your heart, if you know that you've never dealt with that most important issue in your life, that you've never dealt with that sin problem that separates you from a holy God, and you want to do something about it, then talk to me so I can show you what God has done for you. Would you do that? Maybe as we stand this morning for a time of invitation, you have another decision to make. Something's been going on. Maybe you've come to Membership 101. Now you've come to a time and you say, you know what, I'm ready to put my, my roots down here in this church in an official way to make a commitment. Maybe you have some other decision to make. You want to you let this church family know something God has done in your life. Whatever the case may be, this is God's time of invitation. You respond as He leads. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. Lord, we thank You that You have for some reason unknown to us, decided that you will work in response to our prayers. That you've already purposed what you will do, but you have purposed to use us in accomplishing that, Father. That is such a huge thing. Lord, lead us to pray. To pray for the lost, Father. To pray for fellow believers who are in need, to pray, Father, that you would grow us up. Father, lead us to pray, to spend time with you, to talk to you. Father, I pray for anybody here this morning who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would lead them to that most important prayer, that prayer of response, a heart of, of repentance and faith, coming to you and accepting your free gift of eternal life. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do in that heart. And I pray this in Jesus' name.